Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 405. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Jen Thornton. Jen is founder and head of 304 Coaching, helping companies to drive strategic talent development. Having worked as an HR professional with teams in China, Mexico, and the UK, Jen brings a fresh and international perspective to HR planning, management, and leadership. In this conversation with Jen, we delve into the pain points of HR. What is holding back employee engagement? The challenges of building and leading remote teams, and much more. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please do consider to drop in your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Jen Thornton, lovely to have you on the show. I piped in during this odd time of life from Dallas, Texas. Uh, Jen, in your own words, how would you like to describe yourself? Oh gosh, in my own words, I would describe myself as um, energetic, uh, you know, kind of a person who um, doesn't believe in roadblocks, that anything's kind of possible. And I just think life is a ton of fun. And so I guess I would describe myself as someone who's having a great time every day. So that's that's wickedly wonderful, uh, Jen. I, I, I'm thinking about this energy story. You know, we're in a period where energy... Well, I mean, we can talk about global energy and all that kind of stuff, but just the energy story. And, and if you're wired for energy, as, as you seem to be, and I think that I generally am, how does one get someone who's feeling down and, and miserable? How do, how do we co, not coerce, but you know, get them jived up, bring back in? Because if we're just saying, hey, everything's great, how do you go about that? Because I mean, you're, with your background in human resources, Bringing that energy is fantastic. Thing is, we need to have everybody also humming on and, you know, in fourth gear as well. Yeah. So I think that, you know, when working with people that I'm coaching or, you know, people I've worked with or do consult with and their energy isn't quite there, you know, it's about really being honest and having some really honest conversations. It's not about saying, oh, well, your life's great. You should be in a good mood. Like that's not going to help anyone out. Um, but saying like, let's get honest, like, tell me what's, what's with you right now. What, what is weighing with you right now and allowing people the space to put it on the table and to think about it, evaluate it, understand it, and then make some decisions on what they want to do with it. And I think that so often people feel, um, that they may be stuck or in a rut because they they just don't know what the next step is. And sometimes no one knows. It's just putting one foot in front of the other. And I think that's what's so important is to provide people the space to do that, um, not to shame, not to guilt them, mm. not to judge them, but to you know, understand their current reality and then help and guide them you know, to whatever that next step forward looks like. Because when people start m making a move forward, they typically start to feel a lot better. That's fascinating because... I've observed in my own experience in these these uh, pandemic-y type times that it, my energy has sometimes waned. And rather than sort of just brush it off and go the bravado route, which I've typically been cabled to do in the past, one of the things that I have found is that when I'm able to engage in a meaningful conversation with somebody, 
my energy inevitably comes back. Even if it's a tough conversation or maybe about something sad, there's something that happens that re-energizes me and it's happened over and over again. Is that what this is about? You know, I think that is a piece of it for sure. You know, anytime that we feel heard, anytime that we can share our burdens with someone who um, doesn't necessarily understand, I don't think we can, anyone can understand what someone else is feeling like, but someone that's willing to accept our reality and to share in that piece. I think that starts to make um, someone feel better. Again, it's, it's, you know, getting that out. And, you know, when we hold all that, toxicity in our system and in our body and we don't share it, you know, it, it's just, it festers in there. And, you know, being someone who's willing to talk to others about what's on their mind, but being someone willing to hear and listen to someone, it's a powerful gift. Mm. Um, and I think that especially, you know, that's been such a crazy year and, you know, we are all learning, um, how to listen to each other in a different way and how to, you know, accept someone's reality in a new way. Um, but I think if anyone has learned anything this year, what I hope is, is acceptance to other people's reality. So you're someone who, who speaks, who's got lots to say and, 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 uh, and I, so am I generally, and then yet we are also to listen. And, uh, and, and in an environment where we're talking about really what's going on, that also means accepting talking about the shit, the bad yeah. stuff, which quite possibly is happening at home. Not, you know, I'm, I'm sleeping badly. I'm having disputes with my spouse. Uh, one of my children might be having issues and, and that's affecting me. So you as HR, you, you might find the opportunity and the bandwidth to allow for that conversation. But oftentimes when it comes to speaking to, for example, my boss, who might be a little bit, let's say, eager for performance, a little rushed for time, and are you really prepared and able to share with that person? Or is it something that only can happen with you and HR and, and it sort of stays closed off in that space? So I think it depends on your relationships and it depends on maybe the culture of your company. But, you know, when you think about if you are in a place and you need to have a conversation, you have some things going on at home and things are impacting your job um, or impacting your mental health, um, you know, go to your supervisor or that person that makes sense if that's HR and approach it in a way that is kind of maybe a win for both. Obviously it's not a win if you're struggling, but what I mean by that is to say things like, you know, at times um, work is a priority at times, my family's a priority and it, and it goes between both of them right now. I have a few things going on at home and I still want to be the top performer I've always been. So are you open to looking at a few um, adjustments in my schedule so that I can be the top performer I've always been, but also take care of a few things in my personal life. If we could negotiate through a few of those, I think that I can deliver to you and I can also take care of some of the things I have going on at home. So express the what's in it for them kind of thing, the win-win kind of idea. 
Yeah. And you know, the fact that, because what oftentimes we don't have those conversations. And so we get to a place where maybe we are ducking out of work early and we don't tell people. And then people start to make up a story in their head. Well, they don't care about their job anymore. They're leaving early. And so if we don't have those honest conversations with our supervisor, our behavior is changing. And you have a choice. You can allow your supervisor to create their own story in their head, right or wrong, or you can tell them the truth and give them the truth of the story so that they can support you, but they're also not making assumptions about you that are not true. So the, let's say that's from the perspective of the, the energy deficient employee. But what about the boss? Because the, I mean, let's say you, you have presumably, I'm guessing, Jen, have had circumstances where you got a boss who's kind of a dickhead or yeah. not, you're a little bit too much, uh, you know, I can do blah, 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 you know, the bravado thing, moving them into the, well, you should listen to uh, someone whinge on about their personal problems. Mm-hmm. Of course, I use terms that they're not going to appreciate, but the issue somehow gets to converting other people to get that listening ear. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's really hard for supervisors to hear about the whole person um, because, you know, they start to think about, oh, well, maybe I won't be tough enough if I hear about the whole person or I might, you know, I don't want to be a softy, you know, and when you, when I work with leaders like that, and I'm coaching leaders who want to be kind of that tough person every single day, um, the funny thing is usually inside, they're actually really soft and squishy. Um, so it's like this outside kind of shell and and it's so funny. I, I work with this one gentleman who I just think is brilliant and he always comes at things really strong first and he backs back down and I know that dance. And so I'm, you know, I can work with him with that, but, you know, I always talk about, you know, what is, what is, what do we have to gain? You know, what do you want out of this situation? This is a person that maybe has been fantastic and they need to take a leave of absence for whatever reason. Are you willing to be open to alternatives so that you can keep their, you know, their, institutional knowledge. Um, you know, are you willing to be, you know, a human and have some humanity for this individual? And one of the things I think that leaders forget is their leadership goes home with that person. And so, you know, I think if you think, oh, well, I was a jerk to my team today, they'll go home, they'll have a beer, they'll be fine. No, they carry that home. And when they sit down um, to dinner with their family, that energy that you have left them with impacts their children, impacts their spouses, and then impacts how those people enjoy their evening or don't enjoy their evening. And so I think that it's always reminding people that your influence and your impact on humans falls outside also of the actual doors, or since we all work from home or office, wherever we're working from at that moment, but it sticks with someone 24 hours. It's not an eight hour work way, work day. And then everything you said goes out the window. I am so liking this, Jen, and, and I'm going to be a little sexist at this moment. Okay. I think women get that better than men. How is it that one can put on a tie and pretend that everything just is at work and then you take off the tie and everything is different at home? And I want to give you an example and I'd like for you to, in raw manner, respond. Okay. A man 
who describes that we're a family at work. You know, it's really important loyalty and hard work. And yeah, we have fights and, but you know, we're, you know, we get through it. We are a family who also is married and is known to have one or two mistresses on the side. Tell me how that doesn't impact the statement of we are family at work. Oh my gosh. That's such a great, um, yes, I love it because it's, <laughs> it's reality. I mean, I've seen it more than once, you know, I think that it's about, um, it's about understanding what the word family means. And if that person just looks at family as, um, it's okay to have secrets, it's okay to go behind someone's back then guess what? Their team is going to think of the word family in that same definition. And, you know, when we use words, our actions are the definition of it. It's not the Webster, you know, language that we put towards a word. And everyone um, thinks of words differently. And it's really fun. You know, when I coach people, they'll say something. I'm like, tell me what that word means to you. Um, and it's such a great question. And um, especially to ask the executives that they're like, I want this all to be a family. Well, fantastic. What does family mean to you? What does that word mean? Describe it and um, put it in some terms that we can, you know, put action to. And when you ask that question to that person, yeah, they're kind of like, well, um, <laughs> so, but yeah, it's, is it's this, how they is this a someone. safe space? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Which then leads me to the, and this is not the topic of business, but how we tend to uh, address or judge a politician by how they are at home. They have to have uh, a spouse, two children, 2.2 children, two nice looking dogs, and uh, go to church X number of times. The, you know, so the, their personal lives absolutely is taken into consideration in certain countries. In France, for example, they try to separate that out because it's very well known the French enjoy a mister, mistress or two, both, both sexes, by the way, mm -hmm. that in like to have that side. And, you know, oh, I just want policy. I just want their achievements. That's what counts. And I, and I, I, I just, I resist that. And that's really the big thesis for my new book. So it really, that, that's what I'm thinking, but I'm not, I haven't made a judgment as to how it should be for politicians. Yeah, I, that's a really good question. I don't know either. I think that there are um, ethics that are important in politicians. You know, I don't want them, you know, robbing the bank when no one's looking. I don't want them to make policies that hurt the average person so that everyone around them and their buddies get richer. Um, but if they've, you know, failed in a marriage, I'm like, who hasn't, you know, who hasn't mm. had a bad day in a marriage? Um, I don't know. I like dogs. I might judge you if you don't have <laughs> I won't. But... Well I'd rather, I'd rather see a great dog than a spouse, <laughs> oh, <laughs> but, interesting. but anyhow, but I think that, um, yeah, it, it's more about ethics and how people have handled bad choices versus yeah. the fact that they've made it. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, everyone, let's say makes mistakes. Yep. Uh, no one is perfect. And, and that includes in the relationships that people you choose. I mean, nobody, that's a glass, that's a glass house to be throwing stones at. If, if that's where we go. And I think that's somewhat 
the issue sometimes is that we we hold these elected politicians uh, officials to standards above the ones that we carry and i think that's highly hypocritical so there's there's in this onus of let's say employee engagement is it always up to the boss to get the motivation to drive the excitement and the engagement or should also sometimes it be you know just pull up your socks damn it get on with it what does the human resources person say to all that i think it's a partnership and i think that it is it's very multifaceted i think that the employees are responsible for um, working in a job they truly love and if you don't like your job then find a job you love don't be miserable no one should wake up every day and be miserable and go to work um but, and then you're probably making it miserable for other people, which isn't fun either, but, you know, leaders have the responsibility of creating environments where people can do their best work and where people get to be honest and tell the truth and not be judged or shunned or in trouble for telling the truth. And it is definitely a partnership and creating engagement. And I think the employee who sits around and thinks, well, I didn't get cookies for Christmas. You know, um, I hate this job. My boss is horrible because I didn't get cookies for Christmas. I'm like, come on, you know, um, what did you do? You know, but it is a partnership. And I think people forget that often. So the survey after survey talks about poor engagement in the workplace. The, the, the number that I pull is typically 70% say that they're disengaged at work. I mean, who's to know, but that's just a number. If, if that's the case and you're coaching an executive to help them get from 70 to maybe 50, you know, because maybe that's, it's, that's a realistic target. What are, the, what are the methods that you go about? How do you architect more engagement? Oh, gosh. You know, a lot of it depends on where we're at and what's going on. But I think one of the first things we talk about is making sure that there is clarity around work. And I think that oftentimes we're disengaged because we're doing work that doesn't matter. We're doing work that is, you know, I call it vanity work. It doesn't make a difference, but some executive likes it that way and has liked it that way for 20 years. So by gosh, even though we're running into a brick wall every day, we're still going to do it that way. Um, and so we take out the kind of the excitement and the purpose of the work. And that's the biggest piece is we have to start with making sure people have work that's meaningful and purposeful and drives the business. Now, that could be as simple as payroll. You know, we got to do payroll it may not sound exciting and glamorous, um, but there's people who are really good at it and really enjoy it, but make sure they understand their purpose and that they're able to contribute in a way that they get better and better at making payroll more functional. Um, there's people that have jobs that seem, you know, cool on, on paper and in lights, you know, maybe they're the head of innovation or something. Um, but even those people have to be able to come to work and truth tell and engage and and really take a hold of work that makes a difference to the business and then be respected and thankful for it. I think disengagement comes because we're just throwing, just throwing work at people. We're not really talking about why it's important or, you know, even stopping and considering, does it make an impact? Yeah. So I like this idea of vanity work. And, and the, the thing that I often look at is the clarity of why I'm doing what I'm doing and why does it matter? And, and that 
oftentimes takes time to explain. So if I ask you to fetch a cup of coffee, well, I'm asking you to fetch a cup of coffee because I'm, I'm about to have the CEO of Walmart come into my office and I, oh, okay. If you just took a little bit of time, the fetch a cup of coffee, which should sound very derogatory or you know, diminutive, all of a sudden becomes a bigger thing because you've explained why, why it matters. You know, potentially one of the biggest customers is coming in the door. Oh, okay. I'm happy you get the coffee, but we, we forget to take the time. Yeah. And you could say something as simply as, you know, this meeting's big. I need your help to make sure that we start off on a right foot. Will you go get coffee? So everyone's comfortable in the beginning. Cause I know that will start us off on the right foot. Just as easy to say those, Hey lady, go get me some coffee. Like, yeah. you know, and I, just, I didn't mean to say lady, of course. Right. Yeah. Um, Cause I don't want to be in that kind of a sexist yeah. note, but um, this idea of even asking for help also, you know, when you talked to, we were talking before about having challenges. One of my feelings is that bosses need to stop looking perfect. And, and the issue at some level, especially in the pandemic is, well, the boss, you know, had to suffer through lockdown in his third country home where he has four dogs, a lake, a speedboat. Oh, I'm sure it was tough. And so when he comes to work and everything's fine, he, he's not ladling in, he doesn't understand shit as to how it's actually happening for other people. And so that empathy factor is missing. And yet it's not because he has these six dogs, four country homes and a, and a speedboat that actually everything's perfect. And so this element of showing that I'm actually, I have bad days too, but you can't just tell somebody to do that. You know, in our positions, we're coaching, we're advising, we're cajoling. How do you get people to understand the power of accepting that some days I'm not feeling great? Oh, it's such a good question. I think that we have to um, let people see the reality of the truth and really find that connection. And so when you're working with an executive or, you know, they're like, I, you know, I have to be strong and I have to have all the answers so that people feel secure, um, really talking to them about the fact of what if, what if, you know, you tell, told the truth that you don't know how today's going to go. You don't know how tomorrow's going to go. And even asking them questions back, you know, would you rather someone lie to you or would you rather someone be honest and truthful? You know, what if you were honest and truthful and someone in that room had the answer you were looking for that really had an idea that could change the way you sell a product so that you get yourself through this difficult quarter. And again, you know, you had mentioned it earlier, what's in it for them. Sometimes that's a lot of it is understanding that when we are kind of um, vulnerable and honest, then we actually create an environment of creativity and we can pull ourselves out of any trouble times a lot faster. Well, in those situations, it's, it's trying to get over the not invented here syndrome, you know, oh, it's not my idea. It came from him, you know, oh, yeah, I think feel, that's so, so true. Hard. I know. And, um, it's interesting, you know, um, I always tell people, you know, when you're working with your team and you hired an expert, let that expert go be the expert. Um, and be excited about their ideas. But so often, you know, we think we have to have all the ideas, we have to have all the answers. And I look at 21st century leadership and where are we going? Really, 
the number one skill you need is being able to assemble really smart people who can keep up in their expertise as fast as the world is moving. Because as an executive, if you think you can know everything about everything as fast as the world is moving, good luck. It isn't going to happen. That's right. So there's a, there's a school of thought that talks about when you hire somebody, it's about knowledge, skills, and attitude. What's your opinion about that little trio? Oh, I think it's knowledge, skills. I don't know about attitude, but I think it's, I think what's missing in that equation is the way we actually do the work. And so you can talk to four people who have basically the same skills, the same background on paper, they're all for a match, but maybe you're in a company that's very traditional and you need someone to come in and manage how things have always been done. Well, then don't hire one of those candidates who's super creative, hire the one who likes tradition. And so I think what people don't stop and think about is how does it, how do we work? How do we make decisions? And then put that piece into the equation. That's the biggest thing missing because you, again, mm. everyone can have the same skill, but everyone's going to do the work in a little different way. And that's the piece that's missing. Well, that sounds like the actions element you were talking about before. And maybe would that also be fitting in with the culture? Would that be an expression that's in yeah. there? Yeah. I think there's some of culture, you know, culture to me is more like, you know, how maybe we treat people, treat people, respect level. I think more of way of work is decision style. You know, do you make decisions um, in a way that's emotionally driven or more fact-based, you know, driven? Um, do you like, you know, status quo and tradition, or do you like to break what works just to see if you can be, build a better will? Um, I think it's about adaptability. Some companies, um, are always realigning or restructuring or we're doing it, we're running left, now we're running right. Well, then you have to hire people who enjoy adaptability. Um, and if you're a company that's really straightforward and very consistent and you hire someone that likes adaptability, then they're gonna get bored. And so it's, it's really about decision style and how people work and how that job needs to, to be deployed. So, Oh, I wanted to shift into, let's say, the younger generations. And this by, I'm talking about age being, uh, you know, graduating from university in the last 15 years kind of thing, or next 15 years for that matter. I read certain somewhere that there are now more and more people who are leaving their jobs voluntarily. And it seems that there's a challenge to keep talent it used to always be a challenge to find the great talent. When you are dealing with the younger generations, then it seems, and I'd love to hear whether this is your experience, that they're not really as willing to suck it up as we might have done in the old days. There's a Monty Python skit where uh, the, the guy says, well, rather be marching up and down the yard, would you? You know, just doing boring shit. Well, yes, of course. Um, that was an acceptable kind of creed in the past. It's less so today. How does one manage to retain talent? What are, what are we missing in this retention story? So I just want to shout out to those young people for making people stand up and be better leaders because you're not going to tolerate it. And I thank you for it because it's changing the world. 
Excellent. And so I, people are like complain, oh, millennials. I'm like, damn, I want to be one. Like mm-hmm. they don't put up with crap. They take their vacations. Like, hell yeah, they're fantastic. <laughs> um, so first, you know, just a thank you. Second, I think is that again, there are so many ways to provide yourself with a living in today's world because of technology. And that wasn't an option. And so you know, when your mind only sees four options, it's going to show up and be okay with, you know, marching in place, (laughs) whether they like it or not, because it's the best of the four options. But then when you're given a thousand million options and endless options, you get to pick. Um, So I think what's missing is allowing the younger generation and all generations, because all humans want it to be more of a contributor, to be able to use their brain at work, to be able to say, Hey, I know how we could do this faster. Hey, this work is like useless. I don't know why we're doing it, but just allowing people to come to the office and be truth tellers and to be aggressive at really making decisions and driving the company to a better place and not just being, you know, put in the corner and told to be quiet. I think that's the biggest piece is letting people actually come to work and work and do their job in a way that's exciting. So beautiful segue, Jennifer, uh, into working, not at work, but remotely. So you said, you know, bring them come to work and do their job. Well, now they're sitting in their desk in the pajamas, in their boxes on the underneath. And uh, we can't see them. Uh, they, they feel like, like out of sight, out of mind. I, I talk, talk to me some, uh, what, are you, what kind of coaching are you providing for leaders who are now having to work from remote where before they could sort of, I see you, got ya. Well, here's a little secret. I've actually never in my entire life managed a team in an office. I've actually never worked <laughs> in, an office in my lifetime. So I don't know how else to lead other than remotely. And I've led teams across the entire globe remotely. Um, so it's different. I think what we have to do as leaders, if you're used to a traditional office space, we counted performance by hours in the seat, not by actual production. And I think that's the biggest thing as a leader is you have to now say, what do I actually pay someone for? Do I pay for them to sit in a seat all day or do I pay for results and get really clear on the results? And then again, it's making leaders um, be more um, effective and better communicators because if I don't have consistent touch bases or consistent, you know, times of checking in. Um, then that person doesn't, you know, know what they need to be doing, but it was really easy to be lazy in an office because you could just walk by someone's desk and go, oh, hey, yeah, I want you to do this. Or, hey, did you do that? Or, hey, come into my office. And so it was this kind of just, you know, lazy, whatever, my schedule matters more than your schedule. But when you start managing remote, you have to get really conscious about how you spend your time and how you evaluate results and then tell people, these are the results. These are not the hours I need you to set in your, you know, kitchen chair in front of the desk. This is the work I need you to do. And then also come to terms with when that person is accessible. They may, you know, if they're homeschooling their children, which is, you know, a big challenge, maybe it's like, Hey, I will be at my laptop from 6am to 730. And then from three to seven. Um, I'll be checking in between them, but those are the hours I'll be at my desk. And if that person's getting their job done and they're doing that, then that's fantastic. That's what you're paying for. You're not paying for hours in a seat. Well, I, I love that. And I think this is kind of the gift of the pandemic that we're obliged now to know about homeschooling because, oh, 
oh, sorry, excuse me one second. Johnny's about to walk in, you know, or, or my cat jumps up on the desk and that's just the way it is. And that actually is the way it is. It, it is the way it was as well. But before we're like, no, 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 can't have that. And the second thing is we're on a Zoom call. The boss just can't roll in when they want. You know, 22 people looking at their screens waiting because the boss is late. All right, that's how it kind of was. It's certainly at the company I worked where French, you know, how we love to be late. Uh, the boss was, it was a matter of pride of coming in late. And, and so now, well, Zoom time, it's, it's on time. So I feel that those are two good gifts. What do you think? Anything else? Any other gifts? Of this oh, so, I think those are great gifts. Um, I think that, um, you know, you talk a lot about empathy and being a compassionate leader. I think that's going to be a gift from this because, you know, that executive who has never, um, you know, been home all day with their kids and understand what it's like to balance it all because, you know, maybe their entire staff of help can't come into their house and all of a sudden they're doing it all. You know, probably taught him a little bit of humility um, of how hard work actually is. Um, but I think, you know, there's, you know, with any really tragic situation, there will be some gifts out of it. Um, and I think finding a little bit more balance and being more respectful to people as humans, I think it'll definitely be one of them, especially in the workplace. Yeah, there's a newfound appreciation of what a teacher job oh, is. God. There's a newfound appreciation of what it is to do the ho housewife or housework, you know, house husband or housewife. And oh my God, they're vacuuming. Oh, that's hard work. Shit, I didn't, oh my God, now I, I have to do it? Oh. Um, so that's all. This is, I'm glad you feel that there are, there are positives, and I think we need to bring that energy and light into it. Last uh, things that I wanted to talk to you about was um, psychological safety. Uh, you know, talking about this opportunity to speak, having safe spaces. How do you orchestrate that? And just how far should we be going in safe spaces? Because let's say, for an example, if I'm a boss and I'm not, I don't like what you're doing, I, I, I still feel the need to be able to say, I don't like what you're doing. And, and, and if I am always buttoning myself up, not saying what I really think, uh, because we have to couch this under political correctness, and anything I say could be held against me in a court of law kind of feeling, we end up not saying what we believe. We end up sugarcoating stuff. We end up putting cotton wool into our mouths. And that doesn't sound very authentic. So I'd love for no. you to sort of talk me through that. So I think that psychological safety is actually telling the truth more often. And I think that what isn't safe and doesn't feel good in the workplace is when you can see your boss is frustrated with you, but you don't know why. That creates fear. Hmm. And so psychological safety is actually about telling the truth faster and more honest and, you know, when the moment happens, but doing it in a way that's really respectful. And it can be as simple as, you know, maybe someone comes into your office and they have this idea and you're like, that is a ridiculous idea. You can say that's a ridiculous idea, or you could say, you know what, I don't see it, but change my mind. And then that tells that person, hey, it's okay to come up with some big ideas to drive my business. And my boss may not get it, but hey, they're open to listening. 
But when that person tries to change your mind, you may learn something. You may think, you know what? It's really kind of a crazy idea, but this one piece of it, I could pull out and work. Um, but it's about telling the truth more often and quicker, but doing it in a way that promotes creativity and promotes innovation, not shutting it down. So Jen, I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been a lot of fun. I want to admit something. Okay. So we spoke before, we exchanged before about the name of your company, 304. And I wanted to know why it was, and I've heard it's always asked. So I wasn't going to ask you again, why your company is 304. But I did want to tell you that it made me think. Because I, I wanted to craft a story around transparency. And there's been a whole lot of talk about how transparency is important. And, and I kind of want to resist, not because I'm an old fart, but because I think it's more practical. You, you can't be 360%, 360 degree transparent. It, it, you know, full transparency. Well, first of all, we don't even know each other, uh, ourselves, yeah. right? So I, I'm, I'm being transparent about as much as I think I know about who I am, much less sometimes intellectual property, confidential data. There's stuff that has to be kept under wraps. So this idea of radical transparency is fine, but only applicable in certain contexts and concepts. So I then, when you use 304 for your company, I set myself a target to find a number that was over 300 and under 360. And so I want to thank you for challenging me to come up with something. I ended up taking 319, 319. And I wanted to find a story around that and the Prince song and anything. So uh, anyway, congratulations to your work. Great energy, Jen. How can someone get in touch with you, learn more about what you're up to, eventually engage you to bring more of that energy and that truth telling to their business? So you can find us at 304coaching.com. We have lots of resources there to help you um, create truth and create great conversations in the workplace. And then I love connecting with people on LinkedIn. And you can find me at LinkedIn at Jen Thornton, ACC. Beautiful. Thank you, Jen. Thank you. It was such a good time. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find all the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. I like the feel of a stranger Tucked around me, precipitating the danger To feel free, trust is a reason Still I won't tell the lie I sit here passively, hope for your respect Anticipating the thrill of your intellect Maybe I tell myself, there's no use in me lying I'm a convinced man building an urge I'm a convinced man to live and die submerged A convinced man in the arms of a woman I'm a convinced man challenge my fate I'm 
I'm a convinced man Competition's innate A convinced man In the arms of a woman Despise revenges and struggle To see Live for the challenge So life's not incomplete What's wrong with challenge? I know soon we all die I like the feel of a stranger Tucked around me Precipitating the danger To feel free Trust in my reason And let me show you why I'm a convinced man Practicing my lines I'm a convinced man Finds a convinced man in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man, me to the test. I'm a convinced man. I'm ready for an arrest. I'm a convinced man in the arms of a woman. Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary, yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you, and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. 
You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.